Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. It's been a, it's been a great day, isn't it? Um, if you weren't here this morning, um, we gave Dave a good uh, send-off by way of a, a commissioning. Um, had a lovely lunch afterwards, um, and Tuesday he heads off to uh, Papua New Guinea. So if you haven't yet had a chance to say goodbye, tonight's tonight your last opportunity to do that, so grab him before you do leave. Um, and continue to pray for him. Um, it's a big thing that he's, he's doing, but he's going in the Lord's strength. So we do trust that the Lord will equip him to do the work that he's called him to do. If you haven't yet taken one of these books, The Five Things to Pray for Your Church, do please grab one on your way out and use it as a, a great prayer resource to pray for one another. Uh, there's lots of things we can be praying for each other, so this gives us some great ideas for that. If you did start praying for, through that already, um, last week um, the first section was about um, uh, that we'd pray that as a church we would remember what we are. And those first five prayers were based on uh, 1 Peter 2. And the first of them is that we remember that we are a chosen people and a holy nation. And in our passage from Joshua that um, Saab will be preaching on later on, we're told in verse 5 this. Joshua told the people, consecrate or sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. To consecrate or sanctify means make yourselves holy. Of course, God's people couldn't make themselves holy. Only God could do that. But they were called to perform certain rites to acknowledge and remember their special status as God's holy nation. They were told to do that because the following day, God was going to show his power and his faithfulness and that he is a holy God. But we come together this evening to worship that same holy God. We come together as God's holy people, sanctified through the blood of Christ. Uh, We're going to pray now, and uh, Alice is going to come and lead us in our prayers. Uh, And it really, uh, just prompted by James, uh, really just quoting um, what one of the attendees said uh, yesterday, that um, others' holiness depends on mine. Um, Fred, uh, who died about four months ago, um, uh, was incredibly well regarded um, at the school he taught at. He's left a legacy um, that uh, was celebrated yesterday with about 600 people um, at the school, um, from right through his, his working life, uh, family, uh, friends and others uh, whose lives he touched. Um, the school have sent up a, a set up a, uh, a mentoring program, uh, which is entitled "Be More Fred," and it's uh, I think it's had a profound effect on a, n- a number of people, um, and also just listening to the pupils. And I think it's probably, and it's not to contradict what was said this morning about the importance of um, declaring the Lord Jesus Christ in your workplace or at school. Uh, but it's perhaps more a case of who we are, uh, rather than necessarily what we say. Um, so I just felt that the verse that, um, through some of the conversations we've been having as an eldership team, um, uh, in the kind of challenges we've been facing over the last few months, um, uh, the verse from John 3.30, uh, which reads, uh, he must increase Uh, but I must decrease. Uh, So I'd just like to uh, pray into that um, as we come together. Heavenly Father, we 
I come before you, we are marked out by you in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, your word uh, demands of us that uh, we should bow the knee and accept our position before you. Uh, you have fearlessly and wonderfully made us in our mother's wombs. And Father, we are aware that uh, the life we lead uh, should be a witness to those around us, to believers and unbelievers alike. So, Father, we do pray that you would help us to see less of ourselves and more of you. Father, we do pray that um, our lives would be uh, infectious, not necessarily by what we say or the lack of courage we may have in what we say, but in the lives that we genuinely need and seek to live in your name. Father, with your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to be all that we should to those around us. Help us to be consistent, to be loving, to be honest. And Father, as disciples, if we are chosen by you, if we've declared your Son as our Saviour, that we would be genuinely disciples, prepared to learn, prepared to change. And Father, for your word and your Holy Spirit to take effect in our lives. Father, we thank you for your son who reached out in love to save us from ourselves and from our sin. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. We pray that as a congregation and as a, a church that represents you all, uh, people here on earth that we would be effective in communicating with the absolute simplicity of what that really means help us to put aside those cultural things that we perhaps hold on to dearly help us to be who we really are and father we pray for wisdom in these days help us to give access to every part of our lives to you to your Holy Spirit, that it would have the freedom to roam wherever it is necessary to roam. Father, we do pray for the world within which we live, uh, with many signs of uh, sin and war and turmoil and destruction that go against all that your word um, would say about the perfection that uh, you intended and the evidence of sin uh, that rips through uh, so much of the order that you created but father we do thank you that you are in control of all things and despite the challenges we face and seeing that um, often uh, we pray for an unswerving confidence that your word is true that you are in charge of all things help us to hold on even when we are somewhat blind and blinkered to the full reality of that. For our local community, for the government that seeks to lead us now, Father, we do pray that uh, we would see you working, help us to be effective in um, seeking change where change is necessary, help us to stand where we need to stand as your people. And Father, we pray for the community of which we are a part. We pray that our witness would be uh, good, 
We pray that you would help us to be all that we should be to our friends and neighbours and those around us. And Father, we thank you for the liberty and the freedom we have as we gather tonight where others cannot to listen to your word preached. May we never take these things for granted but give you thanks. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Tonight's readings from Joshua 3, verses 1 to 17. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today... I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, uh, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood in dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Michael, thank you very much for uh, for reading for us this evening. Let me pray for us uh, before we start. Uh, Father God, I do thank you uh, so much uh, for uh, your word. As we've just sung, would you uh, please take your truths and plant them deep in our hearts. Might we be a people where uh, those seeds take root um, and bear much fruit uh, for your glory. So would you please, by your spirit, help us this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help uh, to me if you're able to, uh, to follow along.
We're continuing uh, this evening our series through the book of Joshua, and we're in chapter 3 this evening. And uh, it's a very straightforward account, isn't it, uh, in the history uh, of the passage of God's people from the wilderness uh, into the promised land, and possibly a very familiar passage uh, to many of us. And I want us to see this evening, and also next week, God willing, uh, that this passage is actually incredibly challenging. It has a lot to say to us today about how we walk in the world as Christians. Uh, By way of uh, introduction, uh, the crossing of the Jordan that we're looking at uh, stems across uh, both chapters 3 and chapter 4. We'll look uh, uh, forward at the crossing this week, and then next week we'll be looking back uh, at the crossing. So uh, this evening, um, there are two ideas or themes that I want to lift out. Uh, It'll be intermingled, so it won't be one and then the other, but we'll thread these two things together. Uh, An impossible situation uh, and also looking at uh, the faithfulness of God. Possible situations and the faithfulness of God. Now, I would imagine, if we haven't seen Tom Cruise films, um, when we think of Mission Impossible, um, kind of these images come to mind, the impossible missions, um, either in the 60s with the, uh, the classic... Uh, or with, uh, with Tom Cruise. Uh, it's a group of people, aren't they, the impossible mission force, uh, who face a great peril. Uh, and, you know, it's a peril that threatens all of civilization, but you have an extremely resourceful group of people who uh, manage to overcome incredible odds uh, to fulfill the mission. And, hey, presto, the world is saved. Now, it'd be fair to say that the people of God, uh, where we get to in this point, in the letter, in the, in the, in the book of Joshua, uh, they know all about impossible situations. Uh, they knew that while they were in captivity in Egypt, uh, there was no way that the king of the land, Pharaoh, was going to let the Israelites go free. Impossible situation. Uh, the people of Israel, having fled uh, from Egypt, find themselves being chased by the army and pinned against the shores of the Red Sea, and there appears to be no means of escape. Army on one side, huge body of water on the other. An impossible situation. And here, uh, the people stand on the very edge of the land that God had promised them hundreds of years before, and they face another impossible situation. Uh, There's a full river that stands between them and the land which they have been promised. An impossible situation. Again, it appears. Uh, Take a look at uh, verse 15, uh, where the chronicler tells us uh, that the Jordan is at full flood uh, all during the harvest. This is where the people find themselves. Uh, Ordinarily, at that time, the river would have been about 100 feet wide, uh, 3 to 10 feet deep. But at flood, it's much deeper, uh, much wider, and flowing much, much faster. And if that wasn't enough, the people knew that getting across the river wasn't the end of their journey. Uh, There's still a job of work to do. And if you take a look at verse 10, we can see uh, that the land is full of people, uh, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. In the land that lies ahead, there's also conflict and battle that's expected. Real danger. And as the people camp on the edge of the river, we might have expected to read about how the people thought it would have been good to wait until the harvest season was over and then go across the river when it was less full. Or to read that perhaps uh, an engineering group had got together with the management consultants and had devised a bridge or a tunnel underneath the river. 
But the book of Joshua is uh, a great book. It's uh, filled with huge encouragements for us, isn't it? Because it reminds us of the power, the goodness, and the faithfulness of the God that we worship. God has brought his people to the edge of the river at the time of harvest when it's full, when it couldn't be crossed by human effort, not to frustrate them, but to show them the remarkable goodness, the might, and the provision that's found in the hand of the one true living God. As we start to see that unfolding in verses 2 to 3, do take uh, a look down uh, with me. Uh, We read this. Uh, After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Uh, People are given orders uh, to move, and we see that the people wait for the Ark uh, to move out. Now, obviously, there is a danger, isn't it, when we come to read of the Ark uh, of the Covenant, our minds instantly jump uh, to Indiana Jones, and we can start to think of the Ark as uh, a lucky charm or a a talisman of of some sort. You know, Hollywood can do that to our minds, can't it? But the Ark of the Covenant, um, more akin to this, uh, is mentioned by the writer in this passage ten times. Ten times. Uh, so if you, if you look down, you'll see that in, is, the ark is mentioned in verse 3, uh, again in verse 4, uh, twice in verse 6, uh, then down in verse 8, uh, 11, 13, 14, 15, and 17. So in order for us to get our arms around what's happening in this passage, it's good for us to be uh, reminded of uh, the significance of the ark. Now you will recall that the ark is, uh, or was, the most holy physical possession that the people of Israel had. It symbolized to them the very presence of God. And we read about the ark and its construction back in Exodus 25. Now, inside the ark, there were three symbols of Israel's relationship with God. Uh, The tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, the, uh, the law of God, God's word, with Aaron's budding staff and a jar of manna. So we have God's word, God's election, and God's provision. God's covenantal promises symbolized in the ark and all of this is pointing toward the faithfulness of god the ark is placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle and the glory of god manifested over the ark hence the cherubim with wings extended over the ark and it's 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 really interesting well i think it's really interesting uh, that the language that's used to describe the ark uh, in hebrew in our passage tonight suggests such a close relationship between the ark and the covenant that the ark represents it's almost almost as if the ark is the covenant the manifestation of the covenant a physical expression of God's promises to be with his people. And so when God invites the people to follow the ark, it's to say that they should follow God himself. So take a look at verses uh, 4 to 5. I've rearranged this slightly because the NIV seems to uh, arrange the Hebrew in a different way, just in verse 4, uh, slightly uh, the other way around in the original Hebrew. So we've gone to the original Hebrew. Uh, so it says here, uh, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Uh, do not go near it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Uh, the people are told by the officers to keep a distance between them and the ark of about half a mile. And then 
you will know which way to go. And Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves. But tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Let's just ponder that for a moment uh, and, uh, and look into that. Uh, the people are told that tomorrow God will do amazing things among you. Not today. Not now. But tomorrow. So there's a call to the people to wait. For the people to wait for the Lord and to wait for his timing. Now, I wonder if uh, that's something that we find hard to do uh, with our busy lives. To wait for the Lord. To wait, to pray, and to seek his guidance. To hear his still, small voice. To allow the Spirit to speak to us through God's word. Uh, The temptation is oftentimes, isn't it, to rely on our own understanding of what needs to happen here and now. And then get cross, excuse me, if God and his timing is different from our own timing. To become anxious that, why? You know, God might get things wrong. Uh, He might make an incorrect decision because he doesn't have all the facts that I do. And when we rely on our own understanding, there's a temptation, isn't there, just to rush on. And the words at the end of verse 4 speak to us then, don't they? Then how will you know which way to go, since you have never been this way before? And we rush on, and we fall, and lose our way, because we have not allowed the Lord to lead us every step of the way. We haven't sought godly and practical wisdom. But instead, we've taken shortcuts, so we find ourselves in a bit of a muddle. Now, three ways we can lose our way if we're not prepared to wait for God. Firstly, uh, we risk risk becoming controlling uh, of people and of situations. We might start to think that if God isn't doing things the way that I hope in the time that I've allocated to him, Well, perhaps he needs a bit of a hand to help him along. We go our own way. Uh, Secondly, when things don't come to pass as we'd hoped in the time we had allotted to God, uh, we can start to become people who doubt the goodness of God. And we'll be tempted to believe the lies of the enemy. And thirdly, we can become people who doubt the sovereignty of God. Especially if God hasn't done the things we'd expected in the time that we had expected. You see, waiting builds our trust and our reliance on the Lord and on his sovereignty. Now, I just wonder, do you you see yourself uh, in any of that? If so, don't lose heart. uh, Because we can see what we're told to do in verse 5. The people are told to consecrate themselves because tomorrow they will follow the ark. They will follow the Lord. At the end of verse 4, uh, the people are told uh, as they follow the Lord, as they follow the Lord, they will know the way to go. Uh, in the literal sense, it is true, right? Because uh, they've never crossed the Jordan as a people before. That's true. But there's a deeper significance here as well. Uh, the call for them to follow the Lord could also be understood as following the way of the Lord. 
And in order to follow God, to follow the ark, Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves. For the people, there's a call to deliberately set themselves apart for God. To purge themselves and remove from themselves anything, anything that they know gets in the way of their relationship with God. Anything that stops them coming before God. Anything that gets in the way of that relationship. That's how we're to use the time that God gives us to wait on the Lord. To spend the time as they wait, turning themselves, turning their hearts, turning their lives to God. Remembering his promises and then leaning into them. A deliberate dedication to following God's instruction. Because that was the only way that they could cross the barrier that was impossible before them. Because God was going to do it, not them. They had to take the time to get their relationship with God right and to get it real. And that's the only way for us to know God and to know his leading and his guiding. We, too, must be consecrated to God. We, too, must have our whole lives turned toward him. Let me ground this by asking some questions. Uh, The people of Israel, they were facing an impossible situation as they looked at the River Jordan in full flood. A massive swell, an obstacle that they could not cross by themselves. I wonder, what, what are the River Jordans in your life at the moment? What do you look at and think... That's an impossible situation. And maybe it's a health issue that's looming large. A close relationship that's been torn apart. A financial crisis that you can't get out from under. I wonder, what is that for you? Whatever the Jordan River is for you, the call to you is to consecrate yourself and trust that the Lord will do amazing things. Recognizing that we don't know how God will work things out for his glory uh, or indeed for our good, but to trust in his goodness. Uh, Practically, that looks like daily uh, being uh, in God's word, meditating on it, being grounded uh, in prayer, being in Christian fellowship. Do not give up meeting together and continuing to serve, to keep that regular rhythm of Christian life, that regular rhythm of living before the Lord. And then... To submit to his will, even when we don't like it. And in that, he will give us the strength that we need to wait, to discern his will, and to submit to it. Now, the danger is for us that we can see this whole idea of consecration as a job of work that we have to do. Yeah, To see it as a, a duty, a chore, 
uh, a burden or to feel like, oh my word, the preacher's giving me another list of things that I need to do. And you're probably sitting there thinking, well, where do I get the strength or or the power that I need to consecrate uh, myself like that? And I think that comes from seeing what God does in the passage. See, the ark representing the presence of God uh, moves to the very edge of the river Jordan, the impossible barrier. And as soon as the priests carrying the ark step into the water, it piles up in a heap. That's reminiscent of the language used in Exodus as the people cross the uh, the, the Red Sea. And because of what God does, we see in verse 17 that the people cross over the Jordan, passing over dry, dry ground to the other side of the impossible barrier. The whole nation, all the people of God, is about two million people, all because the ark was in the midst of the river, making it possible to cross over. The impossible barrier cleared by God. God had promised his people centuries earlier that he would bring them to the promised land. And that is what he's done. So when I say to you, what's your impossible barrier? Uh, I wonder what, what, what came to mind. I wonder if I asked you what your promised land is that lies on the other side of your Jordan. What comes to mind? Let me invite you to think of another impossible barrier. When we look at the narrative arc of the the whole Bible, there is one impossible barrier I want us just to think about for a moment. And it's this. The question of how does an utterly, utterly holy God live with sinful humanity? An impossible barrier. See, right from the very start of the Bible, we see humanity driven out from the Garden of Eden, a flaming cherubim with a sword placed at the entrance of the garden to stop humanity coming back into the garden. And from that point, from that point, right at the start of the Bible, the question rings large and it rings true. How, how can an utterly holy God live with sinful people? And humanly speaking, that's an impossible barrier. And the narrative arc of the whole Bible shows how God does not abandon the people who have rejected him, but he pursues them in love. He pursues them in love. He pursues them because he set his heart on them. He's promised to bring his people back to himself, and he is faithful to that promise. See, the ark is the picture of that promise. The ark rested in the most holy place in the temple. And once a year, the high priest would consecrate himself in readiness to make an offering to pay for the sins of all the people of Israel. We can read about that in Leviticus 16. The high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and splatter it on the top of the ark, the solid gold lid, the mercy seat, the blood of an innocent sacrifice presented to God as a picture of the people of Israel being made right with God and then taken into his presence, the land he promises. And as we look at this account in Joshua, it's an echo that points forward to the ultimate impossible barrier, that of our separation from God. A death is the symbol of that. And that's what I want us to see in this, that there is another ark. There is another ark that has the word of God, that is the word of God. 
that is the promise of God's election and is the promise of his provision. That there's another place where God in his faithfulness and in his love went to rescue his people, went before his people. Uh, But this time, it wasn't because we had consecrated ourselves. It wasn't when we wanted to follow God or when we wanted to know his way. No. But incredibly, God didn't wait for us to get ourselves ready because we never could. We never, never could. And so the Father sends the Son. And and Jesus came bursting into our time and space, not bedecked in gold and finery in a palace, but into a manger. And he lived the perfect life, loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. He lived the life that we should have lived. And at the end, he wasn't carried by priests. He was abused by them. Punched and spat at. Jesus wasn't carried on the shoulders of those who love him to the impossible barrier. But he was forced to stumble to it. Carrying the cross on his bloodied back to the jaunts of the crowd and the onlookers. See, there was, if you like, there was a new ark and a new mercy seat, not made of solid gold, like the lid of the ark, but made from the wood of a Roman cross, where the blood of the one true sacrifice was shed. And then the rivers didn't part for him to bring him straight to his father, but they closed in on him, even as his father turned his face away, And Jesus drowned under the weight of our sin, the weight of our rebellion. He was utterly consumed by the torrent of our indifference, our rage and our hatred. The bile of humanity's rejection of God's son poured out on the one who came for us, the one who loved us so dearly that he promised never to abandon us and never, never to forsake his people. And he remained faithful to that promise. So faithful to that promise that he died in our place so that we might not be swept downstream in that river and lost forever. And because of all that Jesus has done, because he lived the perfect life, the ultimate barrier was broken. Jesus raised to life and death defeated. And if we trust in him, that's true for us. Death defeated. But more than that, more than that, we are made children of God. We are made children of God now. That by God's spirit dwelling in us, for those of us who believe, through God's word, Jesus, we are made children of God eternally. And we've got to see both of those things with equal brightness and equal clarity. That our record of wrongs against God have all been paid for by Jesus, past, present, and future. All of them done. And we've been adopted as God's children. Does your heart sing 
does your heart sing when you think about the amazing truth that we will be resurrected to eternal life? We're going to be crowned in the new heavens and the new earth. Does your heart sing when you think that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a room for us, for you and for me? That he's going to greet each one of us. He's going to fall on our necks and kiss us. He's going to wipe away every tear. We're resurrection people. Never forget that. We are resurrection people. Do you see the glory and the beauty in that? I wonder, have you seen the hell from which you've been saved? And the majesty and the splendor and the beauty of what you've been saved into? We must meditate on that because that's the power that we need in our lives if we're going to be people that consecrate themselves. We must let the Spirit of God lead us into those truths. And as he does that, we will become people who are eager to consecrate ourselves. We're eager to grow in love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus because of all that he has done. To close, let me just uh, turn to those who are in a season of great trial at the moment, where it seems that the impossible barrier is swirling around our feet. Uh, The Bible is very clear-eyed about the troubles that we face. Uh, Paul cites uh, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, and the constant danger he was in. The Bible recognizes that we will find ourselves in seasons, often long seasons, where we are hard-pressed on every side, where we are perplexed and where we are struck down. And outwardly, we are wasting away. The, The psalmist laments at feeling abandoned by God and having darkness as his only friend. The Bible does not minimize the trials and the pains of life. That we will all endure. As God's children, we're not immune from the trials of life. You know, we carry this treasure, don't we, in jars of clay. But we do have the comfort of one another, our Christian brothers and sisters in the fellowship. So carry one another's burdens. But also, as much as you can bear, apply the gospel to your hurts. Apply the gospel to your wounds. Apply the gospel to your heart. Remind yourselves that as deep as the wounds that you feel now are, and I'm not minimizing them, remind yourself that God is faithful to us. And he's dealt with the greatest problem that we have, the most impossible barrier, being separated from him. And the more that we can bring those uh, truths into our lives, uh, the more that we can apply those to our heart, the more we will be able to trust in the goodness of God, even in the darkness of our trials. Now, we, we may not understand it, and we may never understand it. 
But we will trust God with our trials and in our trials. And we will be able to consecrate ourselves even in times of trial and suffering. To every day be looking to Christ. Every day to be submitting to his will. Samuel Rutherford uh, lived in Scotland in the uh, 17th century. Uh, and he became a minister. Uh, his friends <clears throat> uh, said of him uh, that he was always praying, always preaching, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing, always studying. That's what they said of him. Uh, we might say today that he was daily consecrating himself. himself. Uh, in the latter years, uh, because of his preaching, because of his trust in the Lord Jesus, he was uh, persecuted for the things he taught and he was imprisoned. And Rutherford wrote uh, lots of letters, uh, many from prison uh, that we still have, which people like Charles Spurgeon uh, found incredibly nourishing to his soul. Uh, And I hope it will be nourishing to our souls as well tonight. Uh, He wanted to consecrate uh, his congregation. He wanted to help them consecrate themselves. To be so in awe and love of what God had done and what he had promised that they would be hungry for God every, every single day. Uh, And in one such letter that he writes to a lady called uh, Janet Kennedy, uh, he writes about uh, that eternal hope. Uh, When we, like the people of Israel, when we cross that impossible barrier, when we cross that impossible barrier of death into our Saviour's arms. And he writes this. When we shall come home, and enter to the possession of our brother's fair kingdom. And when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory. And when we shall look back to pains and sufferings. Then shall we see life and sorrow to be less than one step or stride from a prison to glory. And that our little inch of time. Our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Our little inch of time is not worth. It's not worth the first night's welcome to our home in heaven. Do you see the love? Do you see the glory in that? Do your hearts long for that? Whatever the impossible barrier you face, whatever it is, face it knowing that the impossible barrier has been torn down at Calvary. Meditate on the fullness of that. Meditate on the joy that awaits us. And let that joy, that future joy, be poured into your heart by the Spirit today. Bring that joy into your life today. And that's the power that we need to consecrate ourselves every day, not as a chore, but as a great delight. Our little inch of time and suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home in heaven. Uh, Father God, we do thank you so much for the incredible truths of all that you have done, tearing down the ultimate impossible barrier. Father God, I do pray that uh, as a people we would uh, marvel at the amazing things that you have done in our midst at Calvary. 
the amazing truth that by your spirit you dwell in our hearts and that you will never abandon us or forsake us, that you go ahead of us and that we can follow you. Father God, I pray that uh, the truths of that reception on that last day are finding ourselves in your embrace. Father, would the joy of that be real in our hearts today? Might we long to be a people who consecrate themselves for you, that we would do that for your glory and for our good, and that we would do that with great delight to please you in all things. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because he's already done the impossible, we can go from here in confidence that we, he will hold us fast. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore.